Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. environmentalist listeners it is fall time and we are recording on halloween october 31st and every halloween on the show we like to dive into topics that are maybe a little bit off the beat of what we normally cover on the show and today is one of those examples where we look at something that is outside the normal cultural perceptions that we hold in Western society. We're gonna talk about archeology span and the history of the human species through the perspective of an emerging science known as archeoacoustics. We're talking to two people today. First, Steve Waller, who studies rock art acoustics and has some really fascinating, interesting theories about Stonehenge. We'll also be talking to Miriam Kolar of Amherst College, who did her PhD at Stanford studying the sound and the use of sound in ancient sites. This science allows you to go back in time to hear what people from ancient times heard and to experience what it might have been like to live during that time. When most people think about technology today, they think about computers and TVs and satellites and brain scanners, highly electrical and highly computerized versions of technology. The technologies of old were equally as advanced, but just in different ways. During this episode, we're going to explore ways that people of old used these technologies in highly sophisticated ways to manipulate their environment and to create powerful experiences that changed their consciousness on this autumn interlude of the Extra Environmentalist, we're exploring the science of archaeoacoustics. I'm Justin Ritchie. And I'm Seth Moserkatz. We hope that our sounds are a powerful and life-changing experience for you. kind of happened by accident. It was a happy chance accident where preparation meets opportunity. As a result of my wife taking an art history course, she came home with her textbook and it always starts out with beginning of art, 
prehistoric caves. And I had only seen in like cartoon strips, the little cartoons of the cavemen drawing on the walls. I'd never actually seen photographs of the real paintings that our ancestors made. And I was just blown away at how marvelous they were. But what was really interesting was that she said that there was no good explanation for why our ancestors were going deep in these caves and risking their lives sometimes to get into certain chambers and then they would only draw certain figures. You know, so it's this really perplexing question. What are the typical explanations that are given for why our ancestors went in and painted in these caves? Well, some of the early theories were just art for art's sake. You know, they were basically doodling, but that wouldn't explain either what they drew or where they drew it. Then there was a hunting magic theory that was popular at one point, but that didn't explain all the species that they drew were like bison and horses and cows and stuff. But because horse meat is notoriously tough, So it just turns out that the bones that were in the archaeological layers that documented what they did hunt did not correspond to the animals that they drew on the walls. And then there's been recently like a shamanistic explanation for it. It had to do with rituals and that some of the designs come from the patterns that are in the brain and in the eyes and and all that. But the thing is, that really doesn't explain where they drew the paintings. It just indicates like maybe what they drew. So I was just fascinated with the whole subject. And then soon after that, I was assigned to live in France for a year. So we just took the opportunity to go to as many of these historical sites as we could, especially the prehistoric caves. And outside of one of the caves, I was waiting for my wife to get her sweater from the car because it's cold in the caves. And while I was waiting there, I just asked myself, if I were a caveman, why would I go in the cave and do these paintings? Why would I risk my life and only go in certain chambers and only draw certain things? And what is taking her so long? So I yelled, hey, Pat. And then the cave spoke back. And it was just this really dramatic moment because I experienced that echo as a voice coming from the cave. And I instantly remembered learning in English class about the myths that the ancient Greeks had. And they had a myth for just about everything, but one of them was explaining the echo as being the spirit that lives in the rock. She was a nymph who was punished for talking too much, and her punishment was that she could only answer back. She could never start a conversation. And she was in love with Narcissus and pined away because he didn't return her love. So she basically just petrified. She just turned into bones that were in the rock. So that's how the ancient Greeks perceived the echo as being the spirit that lived in the rocks that was responding. So when I was standing at the mouth of the cave 
and trying to put myself in the place of a caveman, when I heard that echo, I think my subconscious knew about that myth. And I did not hear it as an echo coming out of the cave. I heard it as a voice responding. And I realized that's got to have something to do with it. It would explain why our ancestors would go so deep in the cave and only in certain chambers. And maybe those were the ones that had the best echo. So ever since then, and that was in 1987, I've been going to as many rock art sites as I can to test the hypothesis that the art has something to do with sound reflection. Now, it could be really easily construed as like a god talking to you if, if you're Definitely. in a cave and, you, and you're making you know rudimentary noises. Were these people that were making the noises pre-language? Did they have a developed language, do you think? Or were they just making like hoo-hoo-ha-ha noises in the, in the cave and, and listening to the echo? The age of the paintings, it's still controversial, but some of the paintings are thought to be 30,000 to maybe even 40,000 years old. There is some ancient rock art that's thought to be much older than that, but all of it was attributed to either modern humans or our near ancestors or related cousins or whatever, the Neanderthals. We think that, yeah, they did have language at that point, although it's never really possible to prove because there's no record. I mean, but even written language goes back thousands of years. So it's probably likely that they did have language. And I've wondered to myself if this whole um, preoccupation with echoes might have even helped facilitate the development of language. But let's not go into that because that's kind of speculation. But they would definitely make noises. I've even heard dogs barking in echoing environments, and I think they they think it's another dog barking back, and they get all excited and everything. So whether it's actual language or not, any like kind of noise that you make, if it's loud enough, and if you stand far enough back, and if you're in the right place where the rocks reflect at the right angle, then you can hear a repeat. And some of these places, like the canyons in Utah especially, If you go to these paintings that are high up on the cliff and you yell, it's like a voice is coming out of the solid rock right from where the paintings are. And it's as if the paintings are speaking back to you. It's this really complex phenomenon that we as modern people today in our scientific society just kind of trivialize or ignore because we know what an echo is. It's just sound bouncing. But sound waves were not actually considered as a scientific hypothesis until like a couple hundred years ago. They didn't even know the speed of sound until like Newton. So we just have to realize that our whole perception of reality and what we think is real is totally steeped in all our understanding and all these scientific discoveries that have come along. One example I can give is that people used to think that ulcers were only caused by stress. And it's only in the last dozen years or so that they, that they realized it was due to a bacteria. And, you know, even the whole 
concept that bacteria cause disease is only a couple hundred years old, like Louis Pasteur and all that, and the discovery of the microscope. We have to recognize that the people of long ago, even though they were physically identical to us and had the same brain capacity, they did not have thousands of years worth of discoveries and written records. The worldview that we do now, they were very superstitious. They just had a different concept of the world, especially when it came to spirits. Everything was like driven by spirits back then. So you said a minute ago that you were calling out for your wife and it was like the cave was speaking back to you. And you were just saying a moment ago that nowadays we have the scientific understanding of how sound waves are generated and air is compressed and all of these issues. And so that leads to the sound waves reflecting off the surface and creating the echo. How was it that you were feeling the cave speaking back to you as opposed to just hearing the echo that normally we would in day-to-day existence if we yelled against a wall or in an alley or something? Well, I think it was because I was trying to think like a caveman. While I was standing there, I was asking myself, if I were a caveman, why would I go in there? So I was actually trying to visualize myself being a caveman and when I heard that echo, it was just I realized they didn't know what an echo was. We know that they had myths that explain echoes as being a spirit. Now, I don't know if the actual cavemen had myths, you know, of course, but in addition to the Greek myths about echo, I've been doing literature studies of other mythology around the world. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of these echo myths around the world. Like in the South Pacific, echo as the bodiless voice was the beginning of all. So it's just incredible how important the echo was. In the American Southwest, the Acoma tribe, They actively sought out the perfect echo. That's what they were searching for. And so I can go on and on about many different stories, myth upon myth, that consistently explain the echo as being a spirit that's trapped in the rock or that lives in the rock. In the Canadian shield, there's even a spirit called the Mimiguashio, They're considered to be these little kind of monkey-like creatures, almost think that they would be equivalent of like elves or leprechauns, but to the Native Americans, they were called the Mimiguashio. And they are considered to be the source of the echo as well as the explanation for the rock art in that area. How could they be the source of the echo if if the people are yelling in the first place? Uh, What I want you to do is forget the scientific explanation. Try to put yourself in the place of these people who lived in the past. When a person in the past spoke, if they heard an echo, they didn't think of it as a bouncing back. They thought of it as an answer from a spirit. So when I say the the source of the echo, I'm talking about that spirit that's replying. 
let me give you an analogy in visual terms. When you look in a mirror, you look in the mirror. You don't look at the mirror because it gives the illusion that there is like a window to another reality on the other side of the mirror. That is an illusion that happens because of the light waves reflecting off of the mirror surface. And when you look in the mirror and you see yourself, you're holding a candle or something, and you see yourself holding a candle on the other side of the mirror, that is called a virtual image. And it's because the light rays reflecting off of the mirror are mathematically identical to the light waves that would emanate from a person or holding a candle on the other side of that reflecting surface. So it seems like there's a source on the other side of the mirror. We would call it a virtual source. The same so thing you're saying that with sound. you're saying the concept of that sound bouncing back is just a really ab- abstract thing, and for a basic mind trying to figure out that that's actually them speaking and bouncing back to them is just a really hard concept for them to wrap their mind around. Yes, and apparently it was easier for them to explain it as a spirit on the other side. Sound waves bouncing off of rock is very similar to the light rays bouncing off of a mirror. It gives that illusion of depth that there's something behind the reflecting surface that's actually the source of the light or the sound. So that it kind of gives the impression that there's depth to it. There's something on the other side of the rock surface and that that's where the sound is coming from. So it would seem like the source is actually on the other side of the rock if you were standing back from it and hearing the echo? Yes. Just like when you look in the mirror, it looks like there's something on the other side of the mirror. The echo comes from deep within the rock and it's like there's something living in there. And so the thing is, even though it might be kind of easy for you to picture it as the sound waves bouncing off, if you were an ancient person and you tried to convince your tribe that that was the case, they would think you were stupid. Because when you stand up right next to the rock, you can't hear an echo. You have to stand way back. Why is that? You can't explain it because the only way you could explain it is to say, well, the speed of sound is, you know, (laughs) you wouldn't know what the speed of sound is. And the other thing is that you have to have certain rocks, like some are porous and some aren't. So you can't just get an echo from any rock. It has to be certain rocks and it has to be at a certain orientation. So in other words, the more that you get into the requirements for an echo to happen, the more you realize, well, it is kind of a special case. It's almost like, well, it has to be a magic place. And the reason it's magic is because there's a spirit there. So it's a lot easier to explain it by a spirit than all this complicated stuff. It's kind of similar to how people used to think the earth was the center of the universe and the sun and everything went around the world because that's what it seems like. It wasn't until like just 
recently, really, in history, that they realized, well, the sun's the center, and it's not even that anymore. It's like the sun goes around the galaxy and all that kind of stuff. But you have to kind of visualize what people thought back then. We can't prove it, but you you have to go backwards in time and kind of erase all these scientific discoveries. And it's kind of like how a fish doesn't even realize that he's in water because he's so steeped in it all the time, and that's all he knows. So work backwards and realize that how many things that they didn't know, and one of them is about echoes. And we know that because of these echo myths. See, this is something I'm not like kind of making up because these echo myths all around the world, and they held great significance. They were actually worshipped and felt to be very significant. I mean, when you put it in perspective of people, how they were so into astrology, any sign from the gods, like any tiny little thing was taken as an omen, a comet appearing in the sky. Oh my gosh, that's an omen. There was some Roman emperor who killed people because he thought that the comet was the bad omen. So if you experience this voice coming out of the solid rock, I mean, talk about an omen. Right. And and the other thing is, like, how many times have you heard people when they hear their voice recorded? What do they say? They say, that's not me. I don't sound like that. I know, and that is high-fidelity reproduction. And when you have an echo off of like a rocky surface, you know, it's somewhat distorted and everything. So, you know, they're not going to think it was just them. What a lot of the myths incorporate into the story is that the actual spirits are mocking them. You know, like some little kid trying to get your goat just repeating everything you say, that's how they explain that you just heard the same sound coming back is that the humans were being mocked by the spirits. It would have been considered just a supernatural phenomenon. Right. So how did this understanding that the ancient mind possibly could have had about echoes and with sound play into where cave paintings are and where rock art exists? Okay, so ever since that discovery, what I've done is tried to test the hypothesis that the echoes or sound reflection in general had an influence on the subject matter as well as the location. So what I've done is sound level measurements at the rock art sites and then in locations where it was possible, I've actually done a systematic study, like in the whole general area, to show whether there's a correlation of the rock art and sound, as well as a correlation between the absence of rock art and the absence of sound reflection. And I found that that has held up in like 98% of the rock art sites that I've been to. And so what you mean is that when you are finding the locations in ancient sites that have the best echoes, 
or the strongest echoes, those are the locations that have the most rock art? Yes, and vice versa. The places that are most highly decorated have the highest level of sound reflection, gives the strongest echoes. So it makes sense then that if they thought these spirits lived in the rock, that they would think that that was a magic place and that I'm picturing them drawing the image that comes to mind when they heard the echo spirit. They would be drawing what they thought was making that sound. Perhaps as an appeal to the spirits, some way to get their favor. There's a lot of ethnography associated with spirits and trying to gain the spirit's help in terms of economic factors and life. How are you able to test your theories? I mean, did you you obviously found where people lived in these caves, right? And were there specific spots where they would stand or how would you test out these different ideas that you had? Well, I do a systematic study. It's basically standard acoustic technique where you make an impulse sound, which is basically a loud percussion noise, a very sharp, loud sound that's over with very quickly so that you can then record any sound that happens after that that's coming from the reflections. And then you can measure the strength of that signal that you get back like if you were in an open field and you made a loud percussion sound, you don't get any sound back. Would so it be like, be like a beep or is it like a clang or what is, what's the it's noise sound like? It's more like a clap, you know, like, um, like a strong clapping sound. It sounds like a snap and it's like whoosh. Yeah, that's it right there. Okay, so you snap and then you have it hooked up to a computer or you have some microphones hooked up to a computer that analyze the sound coming back to you? Right, I do a digital recording which I later bring back and download onto the computer. And there's audio software that you can analyze the sound levels and visualize the sound reflections. So the reason I do that is to have an objective measurement so that it's not just me having wishful thinking that there's echoes there. I want to demonstrate that there is the persistence of sound and be able to have a measurement that I can mathematically correlate to the presence or absence of the art. And so I did that in several locations, one of which was uh, Horseshoe Canyon in Utah, and, and showed that the correlation between sound reflection and art is statistically significant and that the probability of it happening by chance would be less than 1 in 10,000. What is 1 in 10,000? The fact that there would be an echo that's significant in some way? Well, out of the 80 sites that I tested throughout the canyon, there were five locations with the rock art. And what I found is that those five locations with the rock art were the places with the strongest echoes throughout the canyon. Wow. And the so, probability of that happening just by chance is, is vanishingly small. And so does this correlation hold up on other sites that you've been to as well? Yes, I've been able to do that at several different locations. It's difficult to actually do because it takes a long time to analyze the sound and everything. And also what I've found is that 
a lot of places have really good echoes throughout the canyon, and then there's rock art throughout the canyon. Or else, you know, there's lots of places that don't echo and don't have the art. So it's really hard to find a place where there's just certain little spots that they particularly chose that are spread out and that I can do a systematic study and show that the blank spaces between that they ignored and, you know, didn't decorate had an absence of echoes. But I have been able to do it in several caves as well as a bunch of canyons. But in general, what I've done is like a, you might call it an informal survey of like over 500 sites that I've been to around the world with rock art and been able to show that there are good echoes at those sites that the artist chose to decorate. I just haven't had the opportunity or the time to do the systematic study at all those sites to show that the echo there is better than the surrounding area. My overall conclusion is that they chose places that have really good echoes to do the rock art. Right. And is there anything about the content of the rock art itself that seems to indicate why they would be using these particular sites in order to decorate them or paint some kind of thing? Were these rituals that they were doing or what's really the content of the rock art? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question because in addition to these special locations that have really good echoes, there are clues in the actual content of the art. In other words, what they chose to paint. What I've done is looked at these echo myths and basically analyzed them to see what are the characteristics of the echo spirits. How are these echo spirits described? You know, how are they basically visualized? And a lot of them are human shape, both male and female. And some are animals. Some are heavenly bodies like the moon. Some are described as just being kind of abstract. So that's exactly what our ancestors were drawing. Humans and animals and these other kind of figures, including abstract. So even though that's kind of general, it does show a correlation between what was drawn and these echo myths. What's very interesting is in the deep caves in France, like I was describing before, there's a certain percent that's horses and a certain percent are bison and a certain percent are deer. And I realized, because I'm a biochemist, I have a biology background, I realized that if you add up all these species, they cluster under the biological classification of ungulates. turns out 91% of the figurative species that were drawn in deep caves are hoved animals. So even though before people were kind of describing them as large herbivores, I realized that most of them are hoofed animals. So it begs the question, why would they be drawing hoofed animals in echoing locations? And so it turns out when you do this clapping kind of sound and you have all this reverberation in the caves, which is reverberation is just like a, a whole bunch of echoes, like so many of them that they all blur together to make a thunderous sound. So if you clap in one of these caves, you hear thunder. And so I realized, you know, they must have wondered, well, 
why can you hear thunder down here? You know, this must be a magical place. And there's a lot of myths about thunder being caused by gods in the sky. And most of these gods are riding hooved animals or have hooved animals drawing their chariots, like Jupiter, Thor. They have these hooved animals. One of them is even an eight-legged animal, a horse. I found this painting by this Norwegian artist, and it just it depicts this thunderous stampede going across the sky in these thunder clouds. And that's how they envision thunderstorms making the sound is these stampedes of hoofed animals led by these thunder gods. And it's very similar looking to the cave paintings, which are these stampedes of hoofed animals. So my hypothesis then is that when they were in caves and they were hearing these echoing sounds that sound like thunder, they probably thought that the same animals that caused the thunder in the sky were causing the thunder in the caves. And that that's why they were drawing these hoofed animals in the chambers with the loudest reverberations. So were these just groups of, of humans getting together and clapping? And were they chanting? Were they singing? Were they stamping their feet? Was this a, a big musical kind of gathering? I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that. Some of these rock art sites, including the caves, are really big and have space for a lot of people. But a lot of them, if not most of them, are what are considered private places where you have to really squeeze into a tight place. And I don't really think there were large groups of people. It was probably so they're more like meditative up. places. Yeah, like a spiritual quest that these people would go on to get visions. And there are a lot of Native American stories or traditions about going on a vision quest and receiving your song. So we we know from the current traditions of the Native Americans that music is very important, especially imitating thunder is a really big tradition, especially in the dry Southwest. Rain was very important. So there's a lot of rain-making rituals. It's almost like sympathetic magic. It's like the thought being that if you make the sound of thunder, you can bring thunder. If you make the sound of rain, like with a rattle, it'll bring the rain. So, I mean, I could go on and on about all these myths and everything, but sound was very important. And so what better place to make thunder than these echoing places where it amplifies the sound and you can perhaps reach the thunder gods who live in the cliffs because they answer you with their thunder. And a lot of the rock art on these cliffs are like thunderbirds. Or in Australia, there are the lightning brothers. And so it just kind of goes along with this whole theme of the reverberation and the hoofed animals and making thunder. Because the thunder gods were often considered to be the supreme being. And because it's frightening, the, the thunder and lightning and storms. And yet it also brings the life-giving rain. So, you know, you have to appeal to these gods. And I, I think that that's why... Um, 
all this was so important to our ancestors. They were struggling to survive, and their very survival, in their opinion, relied on appeasing the gods. You mentioned the systematic study that you did. Did you publish these results or submit them to peer review? And then what have other anthropologists said about this research? What kind of feedback do you get from them? Yes, I have published them, and uh, I, I can give you a list and some links to put on your website, American Indian Rock Art and Rock Art Research. I've published like dozens of these articles. What's interesting is that my theory is pretty much receiving good acceptance because it's not really conflicting with other theories of rock art. It's just enhancing all bringing it together. Like I mentioned hunting magic before. Even though it, the animals that they painted didn't agree with what they ate, if you can just go in a cave and clap and conjure up a thunderous stampede of hooved animals, that would definitely be a ritual that could be used for appeasing the spirits you know, of the hooved animals and, and bringing game and bringing thunder and rain and all kinds of relates, but in a way that involves sound. So it doesn't conflict with it. It just kind of brings it in. And the thing about shamanism being like trance, vision, questing, and all that, well, often these shamans go into a trance by rhythmic drumming. So what better place to do drumming than these echoing environments where the spirits live? I can go on and on, but the, I'm not stepping on anybody's toes. And so it's not really uh, a conflict situation. It's, it's kind of expanding our concepts. I think it's being pretty well accepted because I approach it scientifically. I document with measurements, you know, my sounds. And it's funny, though, because at first people were saying, oh, you know, not many rock art sites would be expected to echo. Well, after, you know, several hundred rock art sites that I demonstrated echoing, I said, oh, okay. And then it was like, well, even if they echo, of course you expect a rock art site to echo because it's rock, you know. But my studies throughout Canyon show you can't just get an echo from any rock surface. It has to be the right orientation. It has to be the right angle and, and the right kind of rock. So I think it's opened people's eyes and ears in a way to just how special echoes are and just shown that sound was very important to our ancestors. I can't prove exactly what they were thinking, but the data that I've collected is documentation that it's something to think about at least. So you mentioned that shamans use chanting as a way to go into these trances. And you also talked about how echoes were also used for language and how that kind of helped develop language. Could you develop well, a little bit more? Just, you... I, that's something that I can't really substantiate okay. because nobody really knows when our ancestors first started speaking. But the, one of the main hypotheses is that it involved onomatopoeia, which is basically imitating sounds of nature. Like we have a lot of words that mimic sounds like crack or pop. Those are just words that are imitating natural sounds. 
then that's exactly what an echo does is imitate a sound. So I'm just thinking that it could have helped our ancestors develop communication. So could you talk a little bit more about the the shamans? You were talking a little bit about those chanting and the trances that they would go into. Could you talk about the significance of the echoes in, in that? Yeah, and I can even give personal experience there because when you're at these special locations that have really good echoes, these rock art sites that they chose for the great echoes, I have found myself playing with the echo. It's just kind of hypnotic when you get into the rhythmic drumming because of the answer back. You just want to keep doing it. Almost like this very captivating it's going into this world as I'm just remembering it because what I've actually discovered several times is that, oh, it's getting dark. You just lose all sense of time when you're at these places and you're, you're playing with the echoes because there's just something about the rhythm that puts you in a trance. And, and there are many sites that I had to stumble out in the dark because I just got so involved. And uh, I was at a place recently, I had a flute and I was playing and it really not only sounds good, but it just feels that somebody is playing along with you. Like maybe that's where the concept of a muse came from. So after I was like playing the flute for real long, I came out. And when you come out of the canyon and it's basically the dead kind of sound where you don't get any reflection, it is almost painful because you feel like alone, really. There's nobody playing back with you at that point. So it's just, it's hard to describe. You have to experience it, but I can tell you that it's really this interesting phenomenon that I think would not have escaped our ancestors' attention, especially because they didn't even know what caused it. For them, it would have been magic. Even in medieval times, these great cathedrals they were building, when people were singing and they heard the reverberation in the cathedrals, it was considered to be the angels singing back along with them because they didn't know the sound waves back then. So, yeah, there's just a lot of mythology and just a lot of importance given to this kind of phenomenon. So it seems like a fascinating phenomenon, and I'm wondering if our ancient ancestors would have actually started using the ways that they perceive sound, whether they were designing ritual spaces or even building some of the ancient monuments that we have around the world. Well, that's what's interesting, too, because as a result of my cave art studies, where I realized echoes were important, I started to think, well, what other kind of phenomenon would have been considered supernatural. There's various sound effects, like there's the distinct echo where you hear like a repeat. And that I think is important in these like canyons and in some caves. But then if there's so many echoes that they all blur together, that's the reverberation and kind of thunderous stampeding kind of sound. So that was another one that I think relates to thunder more than a spirit in the rock. It would be more like the spirit in the sky answering with thunder. And then another interesting phenomenon is the whisper gallery effect. And there's several locations that are famous for that, like St. Paul's Cathedral 
is one of them where if you just make a, like a little whisper, somebody way far away can hear you just like you're standing right next to them. Another one is in the Capitol. But what I found is that a lot of these rock art sites do the same thing. The whisper gallery effect happens because the sound waves like bounce off the surfaces and then they converge like a parabolic reflector can make the radio waves converge and make them easier to pick up. Well, the same thing happens with sound. You can make them converge and it's almost like looking into a magnifying mirror. Some mirrors are concave and make your image look much bigger than it would be if it was just flat. Well, the same kind of thing happens, but instead of making it look bigger, it makes it sound louder when these sound waves converge. And so that would have been a very mysterious phenomenon. Why, if I'm in this place, I feel so powerful, I can hear people talk way far away. And so they wouldn't have been able to understand that or explain it. And then most recently, I was starting to investigate the phenomenon of sound wave interference patterns. And I had an opportunity to go to England because I was invited to give a keynote speech at one of these universities about my cave art. And I figured, well, while I'm there, I might as well go to Stonehenge. I got invited to be part of this group to go to Stonehenge and study the acoustics there. But I figured if I'm going to go to Stonehenge, I should make some recordings. But if I'm going to make some recording, I have to have some reason. So I, I should have a hypothesis. And if I want to have a hypothesis, I should think about the very beginning of Stonehenge. Like what was the first structure that they built? Because I wasn't so much interested in what's there now or what the final structure was. Because I think it would be really hard to prove that they built a structure just to make a certain sound effect. It would almost presuppose that they knew how to do it. So I, I was looking at the, the very beginning of Stonehenge, the plan, and it's just a circle of what they call Aubrey holes, 56 holes. And by the way, in addition to Stonehenge, there's about a thousand simpler stone circles in the British Isles. And it's just these rings of megaliths. And so the beginning of Stonehenge kind of just looks like one of those simple rings. And I was looking at that and it's like, that looks familiar. And I had just been looking at an interference pattern. And it's kind of hard to describe verbally. So I don't know if you can have a, like a picture on your website, but if you look down from the top, it looks like spokes of a wheel, like in a circle. If you have two sound sources. At certain places, the sound waves cancel each other out, and in certain places, they reinforce each other to make it louder. So if you have, say, two pipers in the middle of a field, and you walk or dance around them in a circle, you would alternately hear loud and soft and loud and soft and loud and soft. And actually, I have an example of that. And, and so what are we hearing there? Yeah. Okay, you're hearing me walking around two flutes. 
and you'll hear it go loud and soft and loud and so alternately loud and soft. Now I have the control situation. If you just have one flute and you walk around in a circle, it's a constant pitch because I had these flutes hooked up to an air pump just to, to give a constant sound, constant tone. But when you have two flutes, they set up that interference pattern and you're walking around and in some places it's loud and some places it's quiet and some places it's loud, some places it's quiet. So as you walk around, it alternates between loud and quiet. And I realized they would not have been able to explain that. Something easy to do. In fact, in that region of the world, droning is very uh, much a tradition. And so if they were hearing this loud and soft, they wouldn't have been able to explain why two flutes would be quieter than one flute in a certain place. And when I set it up, that I expected to experience that interference pattern. But what was really interesting was the perception that I had, even though intellectually I knew that, oh, in this location, the sound waves are canceling each other out because the peak of one wave from one flute would be at the same place as the trough of the sound wave coming from the other flute and they just cancel out. It's kind of like the sound waves are like high pressure and low pressure alternating. So it's basically the high pressure from the one flute cancels out the low pressure of the other flute and you get basically nothing. But what it felt like was that there was something blocking the sound. So it's just like a little zone of quiet. Yeah. And it's kind of like, oh, wow. It just feels like there's some massive object in front of you blocking the sound. And then as you continue walking around the circle and you're in a loud region, then it feels like the sound is just able to reach you directly. And then you keep walking over and you get into another one of these regions of cancellation and it feels like there's this other, another thing blocking the sound. And so I was, oh my gosh, it's an illusion of the massive invisible object blocking the sound in a ring of these objects. And it forms a vision in your mind of a circle of massive objects. Like, where did it come from? You know, if you didn't know about sound waves canceling out, it would have been like this magic kind of occurrence. And so, so, so are you at Stonehenge hearing this? Or no, are no, you no, just... no, no. This was me in an open field. Nothing was there except for these two flutes. Oh, so you're saying that this model of walking in a circle was what Stonehenge was modeled off of, is is your theory here? That is my theory. And what I did to try to have objective evidence for that is I took some volunteers. I had a friend bring his kids and one of their friends, and then we replicated this study up at a university but basically without telling the subjects anything about interference patterns no mention of stonehenge at all we blindfolded them and led them around the two flutes and they heard what you are hearing now you know the the loud and soft and i just asked them to describe what they thought was there Basically, it's called auditory scene analysis. 
And that type of blindfolded experiment has been done. People have been shown to be able to identify the shapes of objects based solely on the sound, how they block the sound. And then another experiment was done to show that people would be able to identify how large an opening sound can get through by answering the question, did they think they could fit through that opening? But those are like laboratory situations where there were real openings or real shapes that they could identify. So it is possible to identify shapes and openings. So I thought, well, that's cool because here's this illusion that there are shapes and openings. So let's see if people would identify them as such. So led them in a circle around the two flutes and asked them to describe what was there. And the answers I got were just astounding. One guy described them as pillars. And another girl described it as these archways like slat, vertical slats uh, with archways opening. And this other girl drew these massive structures with like these big openings letting the sound through. And they drew these pictures and they showed these circles of these massive objects that were like bigger than them. And, and they looked very much like Stonehenge. There's a lot of characteristics in common between what they drew and how they described it and Stonehenge itself. So so these people basically drew Stonehenge. Did you get some goosebumps yeah, when, you, when oh, you got I when did, you... you know, Oh, my gosh, it was so exciting. And what was incredible was after they described it and drew it, I asked them to take their blindfold off and turn around. And they were all just flabbergasted. They, oh, Whoa! Wow. they could not believe they were in an empty field. There was nothing there. When they had just described these massive pillars and these big structures with big archways, you know, they, they just could not believe it. And, and then I went up to the University of California at Riverside with Dr. Rosenblum, and he was the one who had described these original studies of the blindfolded subjects who were able to identify shapes. So I told them, you know, based on his kind of experimentation, what I'd done, and he was willing to have some of his students go up there, have me go up there and replicate the experiment with his students. And they also had that same kind of auditory illusion where under the supervision of the professor, they went around the two sound sources and they thought that the places that the sound was quieter was because there was something blocking the sound and they described it and drew it the same thing. Now, I was hoping that because it was university students that they would draw more detailed pictures, but it's actually the opposite. I guess they were like <laughs> too much in a rush and they just did a sketch. And it was also kind of noisy there because of traffic. The concept was the same, that they thought there was structure that was blocking the sound. So what I think happened was that our ancestors happened to hear these two pipers and you know, couldn't explain what it was and had this vision that there was some kind of magic structure that was causing that interference pattern, like causing these sp 
spokes of sound that the Stonehenge and these circles of megalithic stones were what they envisioned was responsible for the interference pattern. So furthermore, to test the hypothesis, when I did go to Stonehenge, we did the acoustic experiment of having a sound source in the middle of Stonehenge. Now, okay, so this is a separate experiment. In, in this case, it was at Stonehenge, had a single sound source. And then I walked around the outside of Stonehenge and measured the sound as I alternately passed the megaliths and then the gaps and then the megaliths and then the gaps. So as I walked around, I recorded the loud and soft and loud and soft the exact same pattern as happens in an interference pattern. So if you didn't know, like if you had your eyes closed or you just looked at the data, or if you didn't know about sound waves, you would not be able to distinguish between the interference pattern and Stonehenge. They both cause the same soundscape the same pattern of sound. So basically, the acoustic shadows that are cast by the megaliths of Stonehenge mimic an interference pattern that's caused by two sound sources. And so that helps justify this theory that Stonehenge-like structure, these megalithic rings, are what they imagined were causing an interference pattern. And it The icing on the cake is the mythology. In that region of the world, a lot of these stones, these megalithic stones, are called piper stones. And there's even a legend that two magic pipers went out into a field and enticed these maidens to dance in a circle, and they all turned to stone. And that's all you need is two pipers setting up an interference pattern and you get this vision of these circles of stone. Amazing. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. So it is, it's incredible, especially because you can reproduce that experience today, that auditory illusion. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate hearing all of these incredible stories, but before we let you go, I'm wondering what it means to us now, what it means to us as a modern civilization. We're long past our days of living in caves, and it's really cool to take a step back and realize what our ancestors were thinking like, but are there any deeper ramifications for how we live as modern humans in understanding some of these effects of caves and sound and echoes? I think it does have many implications. The one thing that I think is important is that it shows that sound was important to our ancestors and that sound is an important part of many of these archaeological sites, like the caves and Stonehenge, and and that we should not only preserve the art itself and the structures, but also the soundscapes, the natural sounds. Unfortunately, at, at some of these sites, they've destroyed the echoing ability or, or modified it by changing things around, building walls or uh, walling off the cave or digging the tunnel wider so that tourists can go back there easily. And at Stonehenge, there was a lot of traffic noise. I understand they're doing away with um, one of the roads nearby. So that's progress. It's just this noise pollution is 
really bad. And the other thing is just that whole concept of realizing that our perception of reality is so colored by all these scientific discoveries that we've made and we have to realize our paradigms that we're in right now really affect our judgment. I wasn't the first one to discover echoes in caves. People knew about it, but they were ignoring it. They were trivializing it because they had a preconceived notion that echoes are like meaningless because we've explained them. So I think we have to realize that in some cases, science is not always the answer to a question or a problem, and that sometimes it can get in the way if we have a certain notion. There are many examples in history of science going in the wrong direction. Phlogiston was thought to be some substance that was given off during a fire, when now we know that it's really oxygen was combining with carbon and the carbon dioxide was given off. So, you know, they just had this concept of phlogiston, which was basically anti-oxygen that was wrong. And there are many other theories that were wrong, like the ether theory that was proven wrong. So we, we just, I think, have gotten into this concept or this way of thinking that like we know everything and that our concept is correct. And there are different ways of thinking. And especially if we want to understand our ancestors, we have to be more empathetic about how they lived and what their worldview was. And that can really help us understand not only them, but also us. I mean, when you think about these cavemen were living like 30,000 or more years ago, what's it going to be like 30,000 years in the future? And Stonehenge is 5,000 years ago. What's it going to be like even 5,000 years from now? We can't even picture it. And we just think that we're so objective and everything, but we have to realize that there's more than one way to look at things and that science is really based on observation. But observation often can result in illusions, like the sound waves that reflect off of of a cliff or they're mathematically identical to the sound waves that would be given off by the spirit that's in the rock. So it's just a different way of looking at it. It gives the illusion. So we just have to realize that it's just a lot of things involve value judgments and we have to be really careful of that even in scientific studies. to the autumn interlude of the Extra-Environmentalist. Next up, we have Miriam Kolar talking about the science of archaeoacoustics. So you're up in the Andes at almost 11,000 feet, 3180 meters above sea level. You're in a very narrow valley. The Chavin site itself is centered between two rivers that come together in this narrow river valley plain. So there are tall mountain hillsides 
that go up around you. There are these two rushing, roaring rivers. If you would climb up the hillsides, you could see snow-capped peaks in the distance. But it's a place where you're not in a glacier. You see these immense flat-topped pyramids. They're not really pyramids. I mean, they just look like tall stone buildings, but massive stone buildings, these sunken plazas below them, lots of different levels of terraces. And today, much of the site is covered over with earth and grass because there have been landslides that have come down into the valleys over time since the site was occupied by the people who built it and kept constructing it over as much as a 700-year construction period. So we're talking about a place where the physical experience of the site is just so impressive that a person is made feel very, very small in this complex. So I think we're getting a really vivid picture of what this place is looking like, towering pyramids and ceremonial structures. Could you tell us a little bit about the culture of the people that live there? What were the people like? What were they involved in? Well, we know that the site was not a place where people lived. It was a place where some sort of a ritual was conducted or many rituals were conducted. We have evidence of very finely crafted ceramics that are highly decorated, some painted with relief kinds of decorations that have been broken to pieces in the canals that are underneath the terraces and the plazas and underneath the buildings of the site. So we have evidence of other kinds of small, probably ritually based objects, because they're not the kinds of objects that you would use for everyday function. There are many mortars and pestles made of stone that we suppose could have been used for preparing ritual plant materials. There are lots of stone relief carvings depicting humans, depicting animals, depicting a continuum of human and animal forms mixed together. And there are representations of plants that we know to contain psychoactive substances, such as the San Pedro cactus, pod-bearing bush plants, such as a plant called vilca that also has psychoactive properties. So there's a connection between the kinds of objects that are found and the depictions of these plants, which suggests that they were used in some sort of a ritual at Chavin. And above that, we have depictions of human facial features that many archaeologists and anthropologists have compared to the expressions and the types of characteristics that people who ingest these types of psychoactive plants today have, such as mucus trailing out of their noses and upturned eyes and grimaces of extreme pain or some sort of a very extreme internal experience. These things are projected and depicted in the stone carvings and also the large stone heads that are found around Chavin that once lined the building walls on the outsides. So these were priests that were at the site and ran these ceremonies. What were the rituals actually like and what were the people like that were actually conducting them? We don't know. <laughs> all we have to go on, all we have to go on are stone carvings. We have depictions of perhaps mythological personages. We don't have any direct evidence. We don't have even any kind of historical continuum that we can trace from now back to 3,000 years ago to know what went on at Chavin. So we have to use our imaginations, I suppose. And as archaeologists, when we're trying to be scientific, we don't want to make too many speculations. So we do know that there's an idea presented in all of the graphic depictions of Chavin that 
specific animals are very, very important, and that humans are important, and that their characteristics are mixed. So you have humans who have fangs and claws. So in these graphic depictions of humans perhaps transforming into animal or mythological combinations of these animal states, we have humans with claws and fangs and wings. We have a lot of feline forms, and there's there's much evidence throughout Peruvian prehistory for cultures or societies that have many depictions of feline forms, feline worship or felines integrated somehow into the ritual in these societies. And in Chavin, feline forms are very present, but they're mixed with other animal forms. So in the graphic work on the site, we have depictions of animals and humans and a continuum of transformation, perhaps, between animal and human states of being. We have these beings who are perhaps mythological, or maybe they represent people involved in rituals at Chavin. We just don't know. But what we do know is that the animals that are depicted come from at least three different distinct climate zones. The Andean mountain region, the selva or the rainforest region, and the dry coastal regions. So right there, the imagery indicates that Chavin can represent a place where there's a convergence of influence from all these geographically different regions that are just diverse climates as well. Were these people priests? <laughs> Perhaps. Certainly in the Chavin archaeology literature, they're called priests. Chavin is referred to as having a cult. I mean, of course, you have to understand these are all present-day interpretations of the past. So cults could be fine. Religion could be fine. I think what's most important from my perspective is that we talk about actually what's represented physically there and any kind of an interpretation that makes sense given other kinds of archaeological or anthropological evidence can tell us more about what was taking place. The archaeologist John Rick, who's my Stanford advisor and who runs the current conservation and excavation projects at Chavin, he has put forth a hypothesis that the Chavin cult was really this kind of evolving shamanic society where people had this kind of traditional shaman-like role. They could be called priests, they could be called shaman, but there were people who had a really specialized function in this society, and they had developed a kind of authority by demonstrating their control of elements of the natural world. And you see it in the architecture, certainly with the use of psychoactive plant substances. They could be manipulating and guiding other people in an experience that they would have lots of knowledge of, but initiates in the cult or visitors or newcomers would have no experience. So just by this kind of knowledge of this specific psychoactive plant that they used in ritual ways. And so visitors to the site would be trying to gain something from Chavin or from these shaman at Chavin. Maybe it was predictions about the future or knowledge or some sort of a spiritual experience. We don't know. But for whatever reason, people from outside of Chavin came to Chavin for something. And they probably brought offerings in the form of ceramics, for example. That sounds very much like a what you think of as a traditional kind of old kind of society where people are kind of coming to these religious sites to bring offerings and to get some kind of service from the gods of some sort. 
Could you talk to us a little bit about how your research plays into this and how archaeoacoustics, how you bring that that field of study to this kind of situation, how you kind of extrapolate the sounds that were kind of happening there? I think what archaeoacoustics has to offer to any kind of a, a cultural context is that sound is an integral part of life. Most of us are hearing individuals. Some people don't have hearing. But even people who don't hear can feel sound in their bodies. So sound has this very physiological implication, no matter how we experience it, in, in what form of what sense. Any kind of a, a ritual context where the activities in a place are very much channeled for particular reasons, for spiritual reasons or information reasons, whatever they may be, sound will be part of that environment. And societies across the world and across time have implemented sound in these kinds of specific and codified ways. So there's probably not a society that doesn't have some use for sound that's either especially explicitly important to their culture or something that's in the background. I mean, these are kinds of like basic human questions about how we experience the world. At Tavin, we have buildings. We have structures that are enclosed, and they're very intact. So we know that we can make acoustic measurements in a very scientific way, that any kind of acoustician who comes in with similar type of equipment and is trying to run the same scientific procedures will come up with a similar conclusion about how that particular place or space shapes sound. So in a way, it's like we have an object that doesn't exist anymore, sound, but we have the dynamic system, the physical system that creates or shapes it. And so by understanding those characteristics, we can know what that sound experience that's ephemeral would have been like at a past time. At Chavin, we can measure the acoustics of the buildings so we know what their resonances are, for example. We know how corridors or ducts, these horizontal shafts that interlace the site, connect interior structures with the exterior. We know how those filter and transmit sound by measuring them. When we have structures that are partially fragmented, we can actually do reconstructions with a computer and understand their acoustics based on the measurements of the intact spaces compared to the measurements of the fragmented spaces and then the estimates of what their physical shape would be like if they were still intact. So there are a lot of ways that we can get kind of a hardcore scientific basis for acoustic environments. And the same goes for instruments. At Chavin, we have these patutus, these marine shell trumpets or horns, as they're better called from a musicological perspective. But they're seashells that you chop off the spire on the end and you put them to your mouth and you blow and they make a sound. And these objects have their particular sounding tones. Each one has its unique kind of acoustic design. And then the player can influence the sounds that come out of the shell. But by measuring these shells and their properties and how the sound radiates out of them, we can then look at the interaction between the shell horns and the architectural spaces of the site to understand more about what would have been a component of the sound environment of the past. And so you sent us some of the sounds of the patutus. I'll just play one of them right here. 
so could you tell us about what we're hearing and how that sound is being made? Could you tell us actually about the instrument? So I think that the sample we just heard was myself and at least one or two other people playing replica patutus. So we were playing actual conch horns that are made out of present-day shells that have been prepared in the same way as the ancient site-excavated instruments. And we're playing them in one of the galleries or the interior spaces at Chavin. And because each of the horns has a slightly different sounding tone, so its pitch is a little different from all the others, when you play them at the same time, you get this acoustic wave interference pattern that gives you the sense of warbling. And we call that beating, but it creates this kind of this amplitude or level difference that's created by this wave interference that comes out as a different frequency. And it's kind of a warble or a lower frequency. But when you're in the spaces, that effect is profound in the space because the resonances of the space amplify it and your whole body vibrates with this kind of rattly, shaky sort of vibration that's additional to the sound of the instruments. So the combination of the instruments creates another effect that's enhanced by the acoustics of the space. So you have this sound vibrating through your body, and you're also taking these psychoactive chemicals into your body as well. So you're creating a very spiritual and very magical space, I'm sure. I mean, is this what the ancient people were going for? We don't know, but it's certainly something that would have been possible for them. So with that said, Maybe there's a progression of experiences that people can have as they gain familiarity with the cult or the ritual at Chavin. And perhaps it's kinds of physically affecting moments with sound and with vibrations in space combined with psychoactive plant use can exactly transform your normal human experience into something that seems otherworldly or that you could connect with a belief system, a religious system. And so what do we know about the construction of the site through your research that enhances these sound effects or involves these sound effects? Or what do we know about the ritual given some of the sound effects that you've observed? There are two areas of research from our archaeoacoustics project that I think are, are really exciting in terms of learning more about the potential for ritual at Chavin. The first is that, as I was talking about, the resonances in these galleries. So I didn't talk about the interior architecture yet, but inside these massive temples, there are these long corridors that turn at right angles, and they interconnect with other corridors and small rooms and these sort of cell-like areas, all areas where one or two or three individuals could be at the same time, but not more. So we have these interior spaces that are maze-like, they're different physical levels or floors. They're isolating or they're enclosing. They contain only small numbers of people at the same time. And they're all interlaced with these horizontal ventilation shafts or ducts. And these ducts also filter the sound. So we have this, what we call a, an acoustically coupled network of small spaces where people can be. And we've measured the acoustic properties of these spaces at a very high resolution. So every half a step or every half a meter, we have a measurement of how the acoustics have changed from one place to another. And my dissertation research has actually taken modern humans, present-day people, as volunteer participants 
in psychoacoustic experiments. So that's ex experiments that test uh, auditory perception, how people hear. And what I studied in these experiments was exactly how people perceive the location of sound sources in these spaces. So if you're in one place in a gallery and there's someone playing patutu in another part of that gallery, how do you receive the sound of that patutu? And how does the architecture in between you and the patutu influence where you understand it is or what you understand it is or how it gets to you? And what these experiments have shown is that people who don't know where the sound sources are can generally understand where they are and that the architecture directs the sound in very predictable ways. So sometimes it's surprising, but in the end, there's consensus among all the people in the experiment that the same perceptions are happening across different people for the same sound stimulus as the same sound sources. So what you mean is if I'm a ritual participant going through this ritual and I was walking through and there were priests in these chambers blowing the conch shell horns, I would know where they were blowing it from or I would be misdirected? Well, in some cases you would know, in some cases you would be misdirected. But what the research shows, what the experiment shows, most people have the same experience at the same time and place. So in a place where you're misdirected, most other people like you would also be misdirected. What I'm getting at is it wasn't just me, a researcher, going in and saying, let's do a test. Oh, I hear that. I think it's coming from over there. And then I decide that that's exactly the perceptual reality of the space. Well, that's not good enough because I have expectations and I'm only one person. But if I bring in 45 people and 40 of us have the same response, then suddenly we have a kind of consensus. We know that there's a perceptual effect that the architecture and the sound are creating together, and it holds true in general for anybody. So some of these actual techniques of playing this uh, patutu instrument could even mimic animal noises. Was that the case? Absolutely. Archaeologist John Rick has showed us that you can make a feline roar using a patutu, and it amplifies it like a megaphone, and it's very convincing. So our first day on the site, John took us into Labyrinthos Gallery, which in Spanish means the labyrinth, and he had a replica patutu. And he went to play it, at least I thought he went to play it, and suddenly I heard, like, the sound of a jaguar. <laughs> oh, man. Because the resonances in the space also amplified what the patutu was amplifying of John's vocalization. So it was an amazing effect. Yeah. So you actually were in this space, and you thought there was a jaguar that was in the temple? I knew it was John, but I could have been convinced it was a jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you were on some psychedelic chemicals, I'm sure. Absolutely. And then given my psychoacoustic research about sound localization, if John had been a priest or a shaman or someone who knew the site very well, he could have positioned himself in a place and made sure that I was in another place where I would receive the sound in a very specific way. So he could use the space as a tool to guide and amplify the sound that I would receive. And I think that that's what's so interesting and ground for future study at Chivine is that we have spaces that are instruments. They're like sound instruments or musical instruments in a way because they can be performed by human beings. They can be used to create specific effects. 
So what you're saying is that this site was constructed with the idea of these acoustic effects. If that was the case, what does it say about the construction techniques and the knowledge of the Chavin people? Well, you know, I don't know if the site was created to do this. The point is that the site does that. And the site has a very long history of not only development, but use over hundreds of years. So the point is, perhaps the site was started to be created, and you have some interior spaces that are built in these ways. And as the people who built them use them, they discover they have these acoustic properties, and then they start to use them for specific effects. And then as they continue constructing the site, they keep constructing the same architectural forms. And that's really what we're starting to see at Chavin. So I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit about how you might think the ritual might have happened. Did people enter the temple slowly? Were they all seated there and they were passed around with psychedelic plants? How did the ceremony occur to the best of your knowledge? I have absolutely no knowledge. We don't have any kind of graphic depiction of ritual, but John Rick has suggested, as have other archaeologists, that the organization of some of the stone reliefs demonstrates that procession could have been part of activities at Shavin. So there are a lot of figures that seem to be leading one another or processing. There's a circular plaza that's about 21 meters in diameter that we think is a very key ritual location in the site. I mean, you could fit, I don't know, 100 people perhaps comfortably in that area, but not a lot more. But around the, the bottom of the circular plaza, around the bottom of the interior walls, we have jaguars in line as if they're processing. And then we also have some figures that are carrying patutus as if they're playing them in front of their faces. And we have figures carrying other objects. So the idea is that there were processions here. And that makes sense in terms of the, the long path that you could work through the site. You could work paths around the terraces, paths down staircases, up staircases, across terraces, down to plazas, up to building exterior staircases into the buildings. So there is this idea of, of physical movement, but it doesn't seem to be movement of many people at once. So if it's a procession, it's people in you know, single file or people who are, you know, maybe not very many people wide across a procession. From reading over the article you sent, there's like an opening at the end of the temple where sound could gather and exit out to people who are outside of the temple. There are many openings like that. And that's something that's acoustically important about Chavin is that these ducts, these, they're called ventilation shafts in a lot of the, the literature, but they probably did offer ventilation, but they would also allow the movement of, of air with any kind of smoke or scent. And of course, they would allow the propagation of sound through the air. So we're talking about multifunction structures that seem to be placed in really key locations from inside the temples out to the exterior between the plazas and the interior spaces. And as you pointed out, there's one key place, and this was my second point. There are these two key architectural factors that make acoustics really prominent for Chavin. And the first was the resonances in the interior architecture and the way that sound is very directed and that these spaces have these properties that could be used as tools to kind of guide the physical experience of people using sound. Similarly, around the site main figure in stone or deity or perhaps an oracle representation there's a four and a half meter tall stone monolith 
that's carved called the Lansone. So I mentioned the circular plaza being a 21 meter diameter kind of focal sunken meeting gathering area in the site. And it's outside of one of these tall flat topped buildings. Inside that building is the gallery or the interior space that houses an imposing granite monolith that's been carved. The Spanish came to Peru and saw it and called it Lanzón, which means it's lance-like object. It's got a form that they looked at and they said that's that's what we call it. John Rowe has called it the great image. It doesn't really matter what we call it. It's known as the Lanzón, but the point is that there's this icon in the site that stands and it's enclosed in a deep space far away from the exterior inside one of these temples. But the Lansone is located at the end of a 12 meter long corridor, narrow corridor, and that corridor is connected to the circular plaza on the outside by one of these horizontal ducts. So we have this 16 and a half, 17 meter direct line between the carved mouth of the Lansone and the exterior world of the plaza. And sound can travel directly along that line, or it can travel from inside the Lansone Gallery out to the plaza. The point is that there's this seemingly metaphorical value of having a mouth lined up with a duct that goes out to the central, circular, perhaps most sacred area of the site. And so, of course, I thought, what are the acoustics of this system, you know? So I made acoustic measurements of this duct, and what I found was that the ducts amplify exactly the sounding tone range of the patuches that were excavated at Chavin. So it's like they're filters for these specific instruments. <laughs> Is it planned? Oh, no. And what effect does it have? Yeah. It yeah. Well, it's hard to test it with instruments now because the outside plaza is so fragmented that you don't really have a good acoustic environment anymore. You have lots of rubble and more modern constructions. You don't have the sort of very square amplifying box with the circular curved walls that would focus sound that you would have when it was intact in the past. So my group is building computer acoustic models to test our estimations of how the sound would travel from the inside to the outside. But we know that those ducts do exist, they are intact, and they do work to pass the sounds of the patuches and exclude other frequencies of sound, other kinds of sound. So I'm, I'm really interested in this. It's almost like technology, this old technology that people have been using for many, many years to dealing with sound. I'm wondering if there's any modern world applications for this kind of technology in real world acoustical situations, you know, in buildings, construction, or modern day religious worship. It is a technology. It's a filter. It's an equalization. It's an EQ. It demonstrates that there could have been this understanding of how the physical world shapes sound. And in terms of a modern correlate or a present day correlate, you should talk to some acousticians, because <laughs> architectural acousticians, because there are a lot of people who work with specifically shaping the acoustics of spaces that we use. I was thinking, you know, like the Romans used amphitheater technology and that kind of old world thinking applied to kind of modern day situations. I, I'm just wondering if there's anything that you've come across in your research. 
I know in present day concert hall design, for example, there's a lot of use of resonance space to try to shape or transform the sound that you're experiencing in a larger space. So while I don't know any ducks that are used as EQs, there's certainly a possibility in like noise control applications, for example, where people work with, with duct work or they call it waveguides in, for example, air conditioning systems or in automobile design or in any kind of situation where you're trying to suppress sound in the, in the present day. So ducts are known and used in those kinds of technologies, but in a totally different way. So for you, what was it like to experience the sound and the misdirection? And what does that do to the human brain when you were at the site at Chevine? Well, I'll give you one particular example. My first day at the site back in 2008, I was with a group of six or seven other researchers. And at one point, I passed down a hallway and I looked through a duct and I saw one of my friends on the other side of the duct. And this particular colleague was looking at me and saying something, and I couldn't hear a word she was saying. So I was shocked because she physically looked close to me, yet I couldn't hear her. On the other hand, there are places where you could be separated by a duct from someone, and you'd understand everything that they said, or their sound would be given kind of a boomy quality. So another example that I think is more hypothetical, but we've tested it from an observational standpoint, is that the patootas are very directional. That is, you play them and the sound energy comes out one side of them, that's the opening of the shell, and in the typical way that they're, they're depicted in some of the graphic work of the site, and also the way that the, the hand wear and the mouth wear patterns on these ancient instruments seems to suggest that they're probably held with the shell opening to the right or maybe above. But say the sound is mostly coming out of the shell to the right. Well, that's a lot of sound energy because they can produce very high decibel level. You can direct that sound energy at a wall, for example, and you create this reflection that comes right off at the wall. And in acoustics, the, the ideal is that the angle of incidence is equal to the angle of reflection. So you point the shell, and if you line that up with the duct opening, you can actually be standing farther back in a corridor, have the sound reflection go directly into a duct and pass to another place. And so the person in that other place could be looking through the duct, and they wouldn't see you but they would hear this very strong patuchu sound and it would be like there was someone there playing patuchu but you couldn't see them. So there's a way of doing these kinds of ventriloquist-like effects where you project a sound source from a place where it isn't actually happening based on this kind of visual association that lines up with acoustic cues. So that might be possible to create the sense that there was sound coming from nobody or coming from the building itself, I don't know. Wow, that's pretty fascinating effect that the construction techniques could allow something like that. So are there modern players of this Batutu conch shell horn? Yeah, you have a recording that we made with Tito La Rosa. He's a Peruvian musician and instrument builder who's intimately, intimately knowledgeable of Batutus and other instruments from the archaeological record in Peru. 
just a master performer of the instruments and a very, very spiritual man. And he's worked with us a bit on the site, testing different instruments in different site areas, and also helping us with our measurement and analysis of the patutus. And is there any kind of traditional understanding that he has about the site and its ritual that happened there or anything that he said about the site? He's certainly spoken to me about the association of San Pedro Cactus with the site. I won't speak for him. He has an understanding of, of many things, spiritual and cultural in Peru. And I couldn't even begin to, to speak for him. But certainly the San Pedro Association is important. And a sense of reverence for a place that's been so spiritually important, so visited for such a long long period of time by people from now all over the world. So we had just a few last questions to wrap up. In talking about the San Pedro Association, what does the San Pedro cactus do during its experience? Unfortunately, I haven't experienced it myself. <laughs> I'm aware that I'm aware there are present-day people who do San Pedro rituals, who experiment with the cactus in different ways. What I understand from speaking with people is that it's a purging kind of substance. So that it makes you vomit and, well, it sounds, it sounds pretty awful, but it can create a lot of stomach aches and sort of cleans you out and perhaps cleans you out spiritually at the same time. It's physically cleaning you out. And it has this hallucinogenic kind of uh, potential. And some people apparently experience that with a lot more force than other people. And it seems to be the kind of thing that creates a heightening of sensations and experience. So if that's true in the case of sound or in the case of the auditory experience, then San Pedro could be a catalyst for maybe guiding your attention to make you more focused on sound. And that, that would only enhance these effects that we've tested in people who aren't under the influence. So any last things that you'd like to point out about the site at Chavin or about archaeoacoustics in general? For me, I think what's really exciting about archaeoacoustics is that it gives us this ability to study the dynamics of the sensory environment of the past. And we can take any kind of evidence that's available about ancient sites or peoples or instruments of sound production, and we can estimate the dynamic physical experience that's related that gives us a kind of different perception about the world. A person who experiences something with their senses will believe in that experience and interpret it in whatever way. But the point is that if you have a firsthand experience of something, it's impactful. It changes your perspective. And Chavin was obviously a place where these perspective changes, these transformations were important and drew people from a larger region. It drew people from as far away as the Amazon and the coast, and perhaps farther away. We don't know. Thanks for listening to the Autumn Interlude of the Ex-Environmentalist. We hope you've really enjoyed learning about the science of archaeoacoustics as much as we have. And during this Halloween time, 
I hope you can get outside and find yourself a little temple and scream at the walls and hear jaguars in the background. We'll be back next month with a full episode of The Extra Environmentalist. But till then, keep tooting Petulus in your local stone temple and you'll be blown away at what happens to your mind. Bye.